0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. 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 It's good to see you. Uh, I see several faces I haven't met before, so welcome. Uh, We're glad you guys are here. Uh, My name is Adam Brown. I'm one of the elders that serves here at Grace Church. We're in a uh, series this summer, uh, eight weeks, give or take, on... Proverbs, um, different topics, different principles that we're digging through. Uh, we've given our lead pastor some time off and uh, he's back with us, so if you guys get a chance to meet Justin, uh, say hi, he's a good guy. Uh, we're, uh, we're blessed to have you back, brother. Yeah, we've missed you. Um, so today in Proverbs, uh, we, we've moved, so just to set the stage, we've moved around a little bit from different topics over the past few weeks. Are you guys getting that echo? Yeah. Sound bigger. <laughs> all right. It's okay. You're just epic. That's right. Oh, all right. All right. They'll get it sorted out. There we go. Okay. I got the thumbs up. But we've moved around different topics uh, within Proverbs. It's a collection of wisdom, right? God's uh, principles that govern life. And they are principles. They're not prover- or promises, but they're, they're principles. Today's... Uh, topic is on words. The, the two verses we started with, will build, we'll, we'll pull in a few different texts, uh, but we're going to focus on what our words and our speech convey, right? How important, how strong, how powerful the words are that we speak, and therefore how we ought to speak, right? So the complication, um, it, the, the, it matters more than you know, right? Scripture, uh, the verse we just read says that the power of the tongue holds life and death and it's not just hyperbole but it it matters and so our implication then is that we're responsible for whether or not we're going to breathe life right spirit and life into the conversations and the relationships that we have or not uh, my position then is that we have to cultivate a love right cultivate a taste for life-giving conversations uh, it's an acquired taste sort of like coffee right it's not something that comes natural right we have to work on it and so the action I'd ask of you is you just think back the last seven days, right? The last week, have the conversations that you've had, how do they align? How do they square with the biblical text and the principles we're gonna look at today? I think the benefit for you is if, if you conform, right? If we get into habit of reforming, conforming our speech to these truths, there's, there's big blessing. All right. The the words that these texts keep uh, pointing to is satisfaction. We'll talk a little bit about that, but there is satisfaction to be had when our text and and our our speech, our conversations come under the authority of God's scripture. So we'll look at it in three parts. Uh, Hopefully you grab sermon notes if you want them, but those three parts, we'll look at the satisfaction that words bring, right? The power of our words and the vitality of our words. Okay power, I'm sorry, satisfaction, power, and vitality, right? So we'll start with satisfactions. Uh, In verse, let's see, in 20, right? Verse 20 talks about there's a a cycle. It lays out a a little cycle if you want to start there, but it says, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips, okay? So the the cycle here, if you think of your words or your speech as seeds, uh, they go out, they hit the ground, they take root, They have an impact in the people that you speak with, right? They're going to react one way or the other. They're going to react to what it is you say, and that reaction comes back to you, right? In the sense of a better relationship, reconciliation, or fracture, right, or stress. So it can be positive, it can be negative, but that cycle, I speak, takes root, has an impact, and it returns right? And that return will fill you up. And so the word here on that's translated satisfied is also translated filled, right? So the idea of your stomach or just your appetites being filled up with the result of what it is that you say, the effect it has on people, and it comes back to you, right? So you can be filled with very uh, life-giving, nurturing conversations, or you can be filled with sarcasm, bitterness, Arrogance, pride, right? The isolation, the things that will result from hateful speech, right? From selfish speech. But nonetheless, that cycle will apply, right? That's what the principle here is, is that it will have an impact. Let me give you a couple of examples I've pulled out of a familiar context. Uh, So just husband to wife, maybe. So if I were to say to my wife, and I, I wouldn't say this, right? That's my disclaimer. But if I were to say something like this to my wife, are your parents coming over again? <laughs> They're so annoying. Always telling us what to do. If you would just say something, why, why won't you say something to them? Do you not care about our marriage? We need a little space. Just say something to them. You can kind of feel that, right? You can sort of, like, that's not going to go well. Right? You can sort of feel... The reaction that that's going to induce. It's going to create division, bitterness. It'll put my wife on the defensive, right? And something like that. The, the consequence, right? The, the satisfaction or the filling that's going to come is stress, is space, is separation, right? in the fellowship that I'm going to have with my wife, but it's going to happen, right? Something like that is going to happen. Let me give you another one. This one's a little bit better. If I were to say to my wife something like, I so appreciate what you do with our kids. Uh, you know how they're all wired. You help them grow in their giftings. Uh, you also challenge them in their sin. Uh, you hold them accountable. This would not it. This wasn't supposed to be it, sorry. Um, but they're so blessed to have you as their mom. Uh, even if they don't know it, they're blessed. Right, so pretty pretty different examples, right, of what <clears throat> those words are going to trigger. So the first the first one is hypothetical. the second one you can tell, is a little closer to home. Um, I, I do appreciate what my wife does with my kids. So we'll move on. But uh, our speech will have an effect, right? Ugly, strong, helpful harmful, right? But that cycle's reality, right? You can't get away from that cycle. You don't get days off where you can just, you know, go say what you want to say, do what you want to do, and it has no impact, right? We don't get get that. We don't get a hall pass, okay? That leads to the point of verse 20, right? Uh, I'm sorry, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit, right? And so there's an idea that you cultivate a taste for the influence, right? A taste for the effect that your words have on people. And again, for better or for worse, we come to love, scripture says, the ability, the influence that we can exercise through speech. And if you begin to think through right, history, if you think through culture, again, positive, negative, there are people that like to be heard, right? They like to have the effect, the influence, even the control over other people, right? Through the conversations that they have, right? Through the things that they say. And that is something, again, a reality that scripture would hold out to us. You need to harness, right? It is a good thing. There is a good potential, a redemptive potential that scripture has for the Christian in your speech, right? To unlock, to channel, to discipline in a way that's going to be life-giving, right? You can come to love the effects of your speech. So the question is, how do you want to be filled? Right. What do you want to be the legacy of your conversation with your kids, with your family, with your spouses, with your friends, with your coworkers, uh, online, social media, Facebook, Instagram? What, what is the effect? What is the thing that you are loving to say, to cause, to harvest, to return, and to fill yourself up with the things that you say? Right. So on the one hand, if your life tends to be your speech tends to be impulsive, brash, right? That can lead to distance in your friendships, right? And if you do this for decades, right, these folks tend to isolate themselves, right? The depth and the richness of um, the relationships that God would have, right? The impact that you might have in discipling and encouraging someone as a Christian, you just squander. Right? On the flip side, right, if you think through days, months, years, and uh, decades of um, faithful, spirit led, scripture filled conversations um, that just become habitual, right? Not formal. They're not all sermons, but it becomes the regular cadence of your life uh, as you point your kids, for instance, to Christ. Right, as you uh, encourage folks who are dealing with death, disease, sickness, doubt, whatever those things might be, when you begin to hone and just to routinely saturate your, scripture, your, your speech with scripture, right, over time, God willing, you see the result of, of kids whose faith deepens. Right? You see the effect of um, you know, mission work. We, we heard wonderful mission report this morning that Mike and his team led. Um, you begin to see the effect of life-giving words take root, blossom, harvest, right? And there's, there's a joy to be had in those conversations that isn't had elsewhere. And so there, there's actually some self-interest in understanding this cycle, and being thoughtful about it, right? Cultivating a love for it to have a desired effect, right? To work towards a desired end, right? So what do you want your legacy to be, All right? That's the question I think that's implicit in this, in this uh, passage here in Proverbs on what sort of satisfaction are you working towards? Right? And whether you're doing it consciously or not, you're gonna reap what you sow, right? God will not be mocked. Man reaps what he sows. The things that you say matter. They will impact your lives, your relationships, right? So, makes sense, I think, to let scripture infuse, right? To come into sort of a meditative place as we begin and end our days as Christians, as believers, with God's word, under the influence of his spirit. Yeah, we need it, right? But here's a very practical reason why, right? Because you're sowing seeds of life and death in your conversations. That's satisfaction. Let's look at power right as if that wasn't enough right the, the fact that you're influencing people for decades potentially and maybe even generations in, in some of these follow on effects from the speech that you uh, have for people let's look at the power right so proverbs has that phrase that the tongue holds the power of life and death i don't think it's hyperbole right when you think biblically you think long term about death and life scripture says that there is eternal life to be found in christ right in redemption and death otherwise, right? So ultimately, the gospel message comes through speech. So I don't think this is hyperbole. I really don't, right? um, But just to, I think, offer some context, this is just interesting to me as I was thinking about this. Um, how does God exercise his own power? It's often, not, not only, but it's often through speech, right? So if you just, the first couple of pages, Genesis chapter 1, uh, how did God create the heavens and the earth? What did he do? Let there be light. It's light. Right? Just he's not taxed, he just spoke it. Right? There's power in that. And that refrain is there. And God said. And God said. And God said. Right? That's how he established everything that we know through his own speech. Uh, when he set up the uh, the covenant with Moses, right, he gave it through the spoken word. Moses took notes, right, on his tablets of stone. Um, All of Leviticus, right, God dictated, so to speak. God gave and said, this is how your society is going to run, right? So the entire fabric of the society and the covenant that he sought to establish, he did it with words, right? Massive, massive power in the words. Uh, Look in the New Testament. Um, I've talked in a different sense about... um, the account where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, how'd he do it? Right? Did, did, did he touch him? Right? Just said, Lazarus, get up, come forth. Right? Calling life out of death. Right? When he was on the, um, the sea of Galilee, right, the storm hits, the disciples are worried, right, to the point of, of real fear. Um, cool here too, the triune God speaks to the created order and says, be quiet, peace. I think there's some parallels there, right? God spoke creation into existence. Christ spoke to creation, said settle down, right? Massive power that we see modeled by God through speech. I don't think it's too much of a stretch. I mean, these are my reflections. These are my thoughts. But we're made in his image, right? The Bible tells us the power of life and death is present in what you say. And Paul says in Romans that the message is heard through the word about Christ. It's heard. God chose speech, right? To create, to redeem, to sanctify. How often do you think along those lines, do I think along those lines, when I sort of you know, snap at somebody, say something snarky, right? Kind of feels good, right? That's the satisfaction the scripture acknowledges, it's there, right? But there's massive power, massive responsibility on our part, right, in, in what we say. So that's just, that's the backdrop, right? That's, that's how God modeled speech, and the power that's resident in his speech smaller scale, we have power for which we're responsible. So the, uh, the passage I think that helps here is in James chapter three, if you want to follow along, it may be familiar to many of you. But in chapter three, if you go to, to verse three, I I'll read a couple of verses there, uh, context here. So James, the brother of Jesus, um, which is kind of wild, right? That your brother happens to be the Messiah, right? But he came around to that. He's writing a letter, right, speaking, as it were, uh, to people. And he's concerned that their conduct doesn't match the reality and the costliness and the preciousness of their salvation, right? They're very young churches at this point, people doing a lot of crazy things. And so it's a lot of practical advice, but there's sort of implicit in James's letter. If you guys understand the reality of the resurrection and the crucifixion and what it costs for you to be saved, all of that ought to manifest itself in things like the way that you interact with strangers. It ought to manifest itself in the way that you speak, right? That's that's the context, right? So there's deep theology just underneath these instructions, right? These observations that he has. So in verse three, he says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Right? So something small, like six inch bit in a horse's mouth, right, takes a lot of strength in the horse and the result is literally harvest, right? in the sense you plow a field, you plant seeds, you get a harvest because you're able to take one horsepower and put it to use, right? Bring it into control, right? Massive strength, massive influence coming through a six inch metal bit. Power is deployed and is harnessed the way it ought to be. Same thing with the ship. That's the other image he gives. So big, hulking, thousands of pounds of wood and sails and so on. Little rudder, right? Without which Columbus doesn't sail the ocean blue, right? Doesn't find The the you know uh, America so to speak, right? Little bitty in proportion to the bigger mass, right? But massive influence, massive influence. Small has huge impact. Same thing with our tongues, right? Very apt, very inspired examples. Uh, We have this strange little two or three inch thing that's kind of gross and weird, right? An organ floating around, sort of just weird. Massive power, massive power in the things that you say. Right? How people think of you, right? the effect, the legacy that I talked about earlier, enormous power set against the backdrop of how God models his own power through speech. It matters what you say. Right? And we don't typically think, oh, gee, I have that kind of power, right? But we do. And that's what's dangerous, right? To walk around with that sort of power and influence, just sort of oblivious to its effect, right? If you're not saturating yourself in scripture as a believer with the Holy Spirit to sanctify and change the things that you want to talk about, right? Change the way that he frames conversations through you. Our natural inclination in verse six is to use it for evil, And this is interesting, right? So if you look at verse six, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, the rest of our body, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, set on fire by hell. He's not talking to unbelievers, he's saying, You, church, are bent towards hellish conversation right? That starts to sting a little bit, right? But if you go back to the context, what he's concerned about, do you understand how precious your salvation is? Your speech matters, right? But you have this indwelt sinful tendency to say awful things, right? Because it feels good in the moment, because I was angry. It's like, well, I'm just rash. Everybody knows that. It's hard for me. You know, we dismiss it. We rationalize it. Um, That is our bent as believers in Christ, right? Because we deal with this you know, sin nature, right? And so the spirit comes in and when he works, by God's grace, wonderful things take place. But at the same time, you know, just verbal diarrhea all over the place, right? If I can use that term, but that, you know, get beyond just sort of a gross metaphor, it's real. How many of you can think of something when you think back the way you uh, spoke to someone, you, you sort of cringe a little bit? I wish I hadn't done that. Right? And so, um, the power and the grossness and and the effect that our words can have is real, but he compares it to hellfire, right? That our speech, as Christians even, right? In our um, natural state has the, the scent and the flavor and the effect of hell on it. And when you read the commentaries, people are sort of, you know, I don't know, why, why, is, why is James talking about hell in the context of our speech? So I'll, I'll, just to be measured, um, this is my opinion, right? You, you Feel free to disagree with me. But the, the thrust of this passage, like when he says a little bit further in verse eight, with our tongue, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made by our Lord and Father. Right. The, the reason I think we say the things that we do is that we are selfish creatures. So when, when I zing somebody who sort of has it coming, in my estimation, right, that's just obnoxious. Here you go, right? And, and I'm kind of good at that, right? I've, I've gotten in trouble with that over the years. I'll just be honest. Um, there, there, there is a gratification that comes. I just sort of put that person in their place. They had it coming, right? Could be any number of other, but but there is a self-inclination that comes pretty easily. I don't have to practice. I can say obnoxious things sort of on cue, right? But it is self-driven. Where does selfishness come from? All right, so if you go back all the way again to Genesis 3, God had told Adam and Eve, you can eat from whatever you want, but not this tree. Oh, yeah. Looks good. I think I'm going to eat from that tree. Selfishness. Pridefulness. I think that's the root. Right? Prideful, selfish speech is what comes easily and naturally to us. And so taken to its biblical extreme, pride, right the assertion of self, this is exactly what the sin was in the garden. God, you need to move off the throne. I know what works better. So I'm going to go ahead and eat from the tree in my infinite wisdom you can step aside, right? I'm going to assert self. That's what separates men and women from God is, is pride, right? Self. That's what ultimately sends people to hell, scripture teaches. I, no, I'm, I'm fine. I don't need a savior. I'm certainly not going to submit to a savior. I know better. I'm going to run my life. Step aside. Right? That That's the inclination, that's the trajectory of a prideful life, is a rejection of God whose end terminus is hell. I think it fits here, right? By God's grace, He redeems, He changes through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the things that we care about, the things that we say. That's my best sense of why our speech is linked with hell, because that's where it comes from, right? It, it's a little bit harsh, right? A little bit sobering. I think it's true. You know, verses seven or eight says, "We we have tamed every animal," right? Like think of the uh, the, the folks that work at Sea SeaWorld, and they ride around on shamu on the nose and they do tricks, right? I mean, people riding killer whales, right? We can tame animals. But we struggle to keep our mouths shut when we should. Or maybe even better yet, to speak into a situation with spirit and life. Those are the words we're gonna look at in a moment. Right? So yeah, there's a discipline in being quiet when judgment and wisdom call for it. But better yet, right? when we're versed in what God's word says about a situation, right, when we spend time soaking up the truth of scripture, then under the influence of the spirit, we're positioned to actually speak into, right? And deploy some of that power, right? To put the bridle in our mouth and to start plowing. See what I'm saying? Right? And so James says, we, we've tamed every animal on earth and we can't tame our own mouths. And he says, no human can do it. I think there's a subtle reference there to the, the help that we need to tame what we say and to speak life and truth, it's external, right? It's alien. We, we need the redeeming work of the Holy Spirit to change our speech. You can't do it by yourself, right? You, you may sort of buckle down for a day or a week, or, but eventually you're going to blow, right? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Right? You're going to say something ugly. You need the Spirit to help you. And so he finishes this passage with a few different metaphors, a few different pictures of that reality that you and I live as Christians. Um, The the one I think we can use is, uh, he asks the question rhetorically, does the same spring put off salt water and fresh water? Just another way of saying with the same mouth, you bless God and curse people. You've got nasty, brackish, swamp infested nastiness and sort of Dasani, both of them coming out same time. Right? And he says, this ought not to be. Right? Very gentle, very um, kind in, in some sense, but boy, it's on point. Right? The things that we say and that weird, ugly mixture of things that we say ought not to be. Right? And so... We're sort of left, right? If you read right here and you read that, and okay, yeah, now what, right? If I have this power and I have this tendency, even as a Christian, where do I go? What do I do with that? And I think it's, it's, again, we'll flip now out of power, right? So we've looked at satisfaction, we've looked at power, let's look at vitality, right? That, I think you can use that phrase if you want to flip with me now into John chapter 6, verse 60. I'll give you a little bit of uh, background here. Uh, Christ is uh, sort of in the middle of a conversation with a mix of different people. So he's speaking to the Jews, scripture says, folks who are opposed and are not on board with his message. He is speaking to the disciples, and this is the larger group, 70 or so maybe, but a larger group of people who followed Christ around for some period of time who up to this point would have said, yeah, I'm with you, Jesus, and then it ends with a conversation with the 12, right? The innermost, the 12 disciples, okay? And, and so we'll, we'll move through that. The conversation he's having is he just, you know, the way Jesus does these things, he, he's essentially told them, guess what, I'm God. <laughs> That's what he said. He's just made a claim to divinity. And he says, uh, just as God the Father dropped manna from heaven to feed the Israelites back in the day, he has sent me from heaven. I'm the bread of life that you need for eternal life. They didn't miss this point. They didn't miss it, right? God's provision to sustain life. And he says, guess what? As much as the Israelites needed food to live, and he sustained them for 40 years, right? On manna, they still died, right? Food sustained them up to a point. You need me more than they needed food, because if you accept me, Christ says, if you believe what I'm telling you about myself, that's the path to eternal life. So believe in me, the bread of life, eternal life. You need me more than the Israelites needed bread for 40 years in the desert. And he says these in very stark terms. Um, I'm going to quote this because it's sort of cringy. These, the words of Christ, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And and so you sort of get at one level, that's kind of gross. And if I start to understand what he's saying, kind of offensive. I, I don't need you, right? That, that's the prideful reaction. I'm not going to submit to that. That's nasty. Who are you? Right? That, that's sort of the context of this conversation. And Again, I think the parallelism between the manna and the bread and the physical life and then Christ and his redeeming work and eternal life is very cool. Right? If you eat, we're, we're all going to go out of here. Most of us can go out of here and eat right after lunch. Uh, we don't think about it much, but there's a sort of a little mini step of faith. When I eat some bread, eat some pizza, eat some taco, whatever it is, I expect to be nourished and sustained into the next day because of what I'm eating. I mean, we, we've done it so long. We don't think about it. I don't think about it, but the reason I do it, I mean, it tastes good, but I actually need it. And I expect it to benefit me and to sustain my life when I eat it. That's what Christ is saying. You need to eat my flesh, drink my blood in order to be sustained and to have life. Because even when they ate the bread of God, they died. You need something stronger than that, right? Um, he does clarify. He says in verse 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And, and here, you know, underline this in verse 63. This is Christ. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. You need to understand your need, Christ says, for me. And it's great And it also presses on us, and it pressed on them. Do I really need you that much? And a lot of them couldn't get past this, Scripture says. So many of the Jews left, and even some of his own disciples in that larger group of 70 or so, walked away. He said, no. No. Right? Pride. Kind of bow up. I don't need that. That's a little too hard for me. I can't get there. So not only is your need great and you need to recognize it, you have to submit to it. So Jesus sees some of these people leave and he doesn't turn around to the disciples and, oh man, I lost them. Maybe I was a little harsh on them. He, He looks them in the eye. And he says, what about you? You want to leave too? Right? He presses them. It's a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I I love Peter's response. I'm going to get to that in one minute, but I don't want to move past this too quickly. Right? So uh, for those of us that are Christians, that sort of visceral life or death need we know at some level when we come to the moment of salvation and we trust Christ. Boy, I didn't understand it in its fullness. I, do, I understand a little bit more, you know, 20, 30 years into this faith journey. Right? But if the trajectory of your life is I kind of got this, things are going well, and you're less and less convinced or just less mindful of your need for Christ, that's dangerous. Right? If we can be honest about that. The sanctifying work of the Spirit is to confirm the message of Scripture in our lives, right? where we see its reality weighing in on us. And, and we just run to Christ. Yeah, I need you. So Christ pressed that point big time with the public. He pressed it with his disciples. He presses it with you and me. All right. If you were not a Christian, or if you sort of wonder why I'm so focused on this, right? If, if, if you're not clear, this is important, right? So we'll, we'll make elders available at the end of the service. Uh, this is something you need to think about and come to terms with. And, and you don't sort of get past it, right? You get deeper with it, right? That ought to be the mark of those of us that trust Christ and walk with him. All right. So Christ says what he says. People balk, many balk, many leave. He, he asked the disciples, all right, do you want to leave too? Right? Not apologetically, but pressing them on this point. Uh, and before we read Peter's response, think about where Peter started with Jesus. All right? So they, they met on the shore. Peter would have been on the boat, right? He had the fish... Um, absence of fish. He had the nets over the boat all night long, caught nothing. Uh, They come to the shore. Christ says, you know, just drop your nets one more time. Whatever. Okay. Drop the nets. Massive catch. Big miracle, right? Peter begins to understand a little bit of who Christ is at that moment. And what's his reaction? Do you guys remember what he says? Depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Right? When his first taste of Christ, when he understood a little bit of who Christ was, he recoiled. Right? He recoiled. And that wasn't like putting on airs. That, that, that was just sort of visceral. He's like, I, I'm sinful. I know you're not. Go away. That's where he started. And Jesus was actually friendly at that moment. Here, I'm going to give you some fish. Right? Now Jesus is saying... Eat my flesh. Do you want to leave? Right? It's pressing on him. And by God's grace, right, here's what Peter says to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe. And to know that you were the Holy One of God. Wow. Right? So somewhere between on the beach with Jesus recoiling and you have the words of life, I've come to know it. Peter's acquired a taste for the words of life. Right? Right? Because Christ said, the words that I speak to you are spirit and life. This is sort of unvarnished, just drinking from the fire hydrant truth. And by God's grace, Peter likes it. Loves it. Not going to go anywhere else. What a response. I said earlier, sort of like coffee right? Um, it doesn't come natural. Right? It takes time. It tastes weird. Kind of leaves a strange taste in my mouth. It's not normal. It's a little bit foreign. But man, I have coffee every day. I don't leave the house now without coffee. Right? By God's grace, that's where we're headed, right? For those of us that are believers, that's the call, right? You saturate yourself with the words of spirit and life. He helps you acquire the taste for the son of God. And so when distractions come, when things that um, compete for your attention, or you're tempted to say something really nasty to somebody, and it's easier to do it online than it is in person, I'm just going to send, right? Yeah, got it. Right. The sanctifying work of the spirit sort of pulls you in, kind of chips that stuff away and said, here's a new taste. Why don't you say something a little bit different? Why don't you say something that reflects spirit and life in your conversation, All right, Let me redeem your conversation with your spouse, with your kids, with your workers, right? With whoever it is that you're talking to, right? That's the hard work, right? Whatever, that, whatever happened in Peter's life. And we know that he fell again, right? He's not perfect, right? We don't reach a state of perfection. He denied Christ a little bit later, but he got it then. Right? Let Christ, let the word, let the spirit change your taste buds. Acquire the taste, right? Get a second and a third cup where you're sort of (laughs) electrified, right? Overdo it. It's a good thing, right? Let me give you a few examples of where I could see this working. You you might have examples in your mind already. Um, I'm gonna pick easy topics like COVID masks or race relations. And some of you are going, ooh, okay. (laughs) You had me up to this point, right? I'm not gonna settle the debates, but I am gonna offer some perspective on it. So if we talk about COVID and Delta variants, uh, the underlying issues that animate people in big ways, right, on this topic, um, health and safety, life and death, um, government control, coercion, And some of you can kind of identify with some more than the other, and, and they're real concerns. Don't hear me minimize. Don't hear me dismiss. They're real, right? But if you are saturated in the words of life, spirit, truth, then what ought to be in the back of our minds, something like, you know what? Death and sickness is a reality, and I hate them. But I know there's a resurrection coming, I know that Christ can heal, can protect, and I'll I'll ask him to in obedience to James. I'll ask for the protection of loved ones. I can decide whether or not I want to wear a mask. I'm happy to share my opinion with you if you want to know what my opinion is. But instead of going to the mat and just offending someone, if I can frame this in terms of I know the Lord of life and death who will eradicate sickness, Changes your conversation. All right, that was the easy one. Now let's talk about race, right? I'm 44. I've never seen anything like what's going on right now. Right? It's touchy. There's complicated issues. All sorts of deeply held opinions about race, right? Right? I know that Colossians three and revelation five, both of them, I don't have time to read them. Both of them say that race, race says come together to magnify the worship of God. That's true here now, that's true in heaven later. He is ultimate. We are not, but all of us come together as redeemed. That doesn't right wrongs of the past. That doesn't necessarily settle a debate, but I know what your race is for. I know what mine is for. I know how I'm called to love my neighbor. We might disagree, okay? But I know who the author of creation is and why he created race. It's to maximize his glory. That's what scripture says. I'll go to the mat on that one, right? I will speak those words in spirit and in truth and in love but it's going to change the way for some of us that we approach that conversation, right? Whatever the opinion or the particular nuance might be, right? If we acquire this taste for the words of spirit in life, it's going to change your conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah. One last illustration and I'm done. Uh, I, I've shared... Uh, with several of you about a friend that I met or I made in uh, Malawi when I went on the trip with Mike earlier this summer, a wonderful man named Shadrach, uh, who lived in the southern part of Malawi, a very educated man, he's a medical professional there, Uh, speaks four languages fluently, and a fifth a little bit, right? Super educated, accomplished guy. And so over the course of six days, we walked around and talked about a whole host of things and he told me about his need to simplify his life, which I just sort of smiled, right? Um, it's it, good for me to hear right? about simplifying one's lifestyle. And so he left the medical profession and he moved out and he taught himself to farm and he has an amazing farm. I'll tell you about some other time, um, but they downsized. His wife didn't like it for a while. I mean, she was on board, but there was a little bit of turmoil. They had to deal with it. Uh, he has a bunch of kids. Some are grown, others are adopted and young. So the money that he's leaving behind impacts those lives, right, real impact. And so I asked him, you know, how'd that go? When you're thinking about your kids on the one hand, your wife on the other, um, and and here's this just, you know, wonderful man telling me about the benefits of, you know, his need to simplify, wonderful stuff. So great conversation, and we've continued it over email. And so what I want you to hear I'm going to read you a little excerpt that he sent me a short note um, but just hear, if you can, um, you, know, his taste for the Savior, just sort of latent in, in the conversation that he shares with me, right? Uh, dear Adam my advice is that you obey the call to God's ministry without any excuses, okay? Um, you know, this is sort of hard, Shadrach. I got a lot going on. There's a lot of people that depend on, you don't understand. Your heavenly investment will be much greater than your worldly investments. <sighs> greater is the one that is in us than the one that is in the world. I experienced the same loss when I was moving to the village, but later, I discovered the joy in me that surpasses human understanding. Uh, When Jesus was calling his disciples, he asked them to leave everything and to follow him. Uh, The rich young man was asked to sell everything, share it with the poor, follow Christ. When you're in Christ, you become totally a new creation. I, I love the lilt, right? I wish you could hear his voice. You become totally a new creation and automatically the world goes behind you, right? Not preachy, experiential. You can tell he's read scripture once or twice, right? With his references, right? His acquired taste for Christ is just latent in his conversation to me. Right? It's simple. It's clear. It's compelling. Right? It's spirit and life. Good stuff. Right? At the end of these mission days, though, like Some of the jokes he told, I probably wouldn't share with you from the pulpit. I might share with you elsewhere. Right? This man loved life. Uh, at the end of the mission days, um, he'd get a Coke or a lollipop. It's been a good day. I'll see you tomorrow. Right? Simple pleasures with a Coke and a lollipop flowing from a much deeper pleasure and satisfaction in Christ. Right? May we do the same. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are everything to us. Lord, you are our maker, our redeemer, and you've given us the words of spirit and life that not only save and heal and redeem, but Lord, they enrich. They make this life abundant, as you said they would. So Lord, give us the, uh, the faith and give us the nudge to humble ourselves, to accept your sovereign call, to quiet ourselves and to learn from you and your words so that our speech might reflect it. And the words that you have given us that have brought life and vitality would do the same for others. And Lord, within your church, right, this small gathering, may we do the same for each other, encouraging one another with life, with spirit, with the name of Jesus. Lord, may you get glory out of our satisfaction in you and how it just permeates everything that we talk about. That you are the one on our lips. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.